You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that uh, though undeserving and though uh, set against you, you and your mercy still choose us and you seek us out and you save us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would impress that upon us now, that uh, the two great truths that we would know in our lives, that we are uh, great sinners, but above and beyond all that, you are a much greater Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's talk about sin. And um, uh, we're looking at Articles 9 and 10 as we uh, head uh, breezing through the articles. I've not been able to go as in-depth as I would have liked to have gone, but that's probably for the best because it can get really academic. And if you want to pull up uh, the articles on your telephone, uh, does anyone ever call it a telephone anymore? If you've got your telegraph out, um, if you've got your telephone, you can pull up Articles 9 and 10 because the language is a little um, heavy going. Uh, But we're going to talk about 9, and then we'll get to 10. Let me read it for us. Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk. Now, remember, I'm going to parse all this out, or try to. But it is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. And therefore, in every person born into this world, it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. Say that over your child when they're born. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated, whereby the lust of the flesh, uh, called in Greek, uh, sarx, I'm not going to, you don't need to know your Greek, uh, which some do expound the wisdom some sensuality, some of the affection, some the desire of the flesh is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, yet the apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. Woo! That was a lot. And I'll read Article 10, which is much more um, controversial if you can believe it. Um, the whole narrative of Scripture is... Uh, can be broken down into several segments, but from the fall of man in Genesis, things just didn't go great beyond that. Um, We didn't get better. In fact, we got from bad uh, to worse. And it seems to me that it's not that successive generations get more and more sinful. We just get really good at figuring out ways to sin. It really, and it comes naturally to us. And so we see this evidenced early on in the Bible with uh, the Tower of Babel. Remember that? Or Babel? Uh, where they said, let us make uh, a monument unto ourselves that is so high that it's going to reach God. And uh, the Hebrew goes out of its way to say that God stooped down, which means there's nothing that we can build that is so high that God still doesn't have to stoop down to see it. And uh, God stoops down and says, okay, I'm going to confuse uh, your languages and, uh, and scatter you to all the different parts uh, of uh, the earth. And so that's uh, why even our differences in language 
are a result of sin. And all of it goes back uh, to Adam and Eve, and we've done a lot of teaching on that uh, in the Garden of Eden. And uh, Adam and Eve uh, both falling and into uh, sin. And as a result of that, we all are, as uh, the article says, um, that it is our natural uh, disposition that we are very far gone from original righteousness, understatement, uh, but is in our very nature inclined to evil. That our default position is actually to be evil. If you want to use softer language but still makes the point, I think, that all of us are inclined to do whatever it is that we want to do. That really is the nature of sin. I want to do what I want to do, uh, much less the implications that that has on the life of the people that I love, uh, but also uh, really uh, not taking any consideration to what maybe God wants uh, me to do. And so it really is uh, a, um, a thoroughgoing corruption. Uh, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It is all natural to us. Now, at one point in time, I kind of believed Sarah McLaughlin that we're all born innocent, right? You know, you're watching and the dogs look like they're about to be put down and you're like, oh, this is terrible. And uh, for the ASPCA, which is a wonderful organization, but um, all that to say, uh, I really thought, because Jesus talks about it, doesn't he? He says, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a little child. And I just assumed that that meant that they're innocent and they're sweet, and then I had kids. I mean, you, you know this. If you've had little children in your home, they're trying to kill you. They have nothing to get up for in the morning, and they know you do. And they will take you for a ride for your whole life. I mean, and... If they were born innocent, you know, I asked the kids at the day school not that long ago, who taught you how to misbehave? Some of them got it. Nobody. It comes naturally to them. If it did, we wouldn't have to put hooks on cabinets. And, and the, Now, once you get to the third child, you, you don't even worry about the hooks. It's like, oh, Ajax never killed anybody. At some, you know, um, uh, you, you know, put hooks on the cabinets and things in the electrical sockets. Why? It's a, isn't it amazing that that's immediately where they go? No child says, I have the overwhelming urge to clean up my toys. <laughs> Every child said, let's set it on fire right now. <laughs> Just total pandemonium and chaos. And I used to roll my eyes at my kids, but then realized I did the same thing that when my parents would ask me as I asked my children, why did you do that? You know what they say? I don't know. I mean, have we changed our answer? You know, when our spouse says to us, why do you do this? I don't know. Just, I mean, really, it's the, not that it makes uh, an excuse, at least in my family, uh, but at the same time, yeah, there really is a part of us that uh, we're going to get to Romans 7 in a minute, that can't escape the fact that we're bent toward doing the wrong thing. That actually what it takes is an intervention in our lives, even for the non-Christian, 
to be able to make right, self-sacrificing choices. And that intervention is almost always love. Right? Even for the non-Christian, being married, having children, having somebody in your life that, that means more to you than you mean to yourself. But I thought I was a really great guy until I got married. And then just when I thought, I'm making it happen, we had kids. And you realize that you're a mess, your spouse is a mess, and God willing along the way, he gives you little messes. Right? That everybody is in the same boat, and we all have this propensity uh, towards sin, that it's a condition, not simply an action. And so often what we try to do is we try to treat the manifestation. We try to treat the symptoms rather than the actual cause. Now, some of you are just better people than I am. I, there were two girls that I went to college with. They were twins. And um, they were the nicest people on the face of the earth. Not Christians. But they made me look terrible. And they looked like the good Christians. They just had the disposition and wherewithal to be able to live life between the ditches in such a way that it really put uh, me to shame. And so some of us do have the ability to just stop certain things. But I would bet that even those who have that ability can't stop doing other things. I asked in a sermon rhetorically, how many of you are without sin? And a guy in Beaufort raised his hand in the back. And I said, because his wife was there, I was like, we'll talk to Nancy after the, uh, the service. And uh, the place erupted in laughter, and the poor guy uh, never came back. Um, <laughs> no, he did. He did come back. Uh, he said he misunderstood the question. And I said, yeah, right. <laughs> he said, I thought you meant Nancy. And I said, no, not true. And so we're inclined to evil, and we, our, our flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. We all want to be kings of our own lives. We all want to go our own way. So let's look at Romans 7 before we get to wrath and damnation. Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 7 going up to uh, chapter 8. Um, um, no, actually, let's just start at verse uh, 13. Did, wit, did that which is good then bring death to me? That's the law. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. There's that Greek word that the articles use, flesh. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing as a Christian. Now, how do we know he's writing as a Christian? Because actually early on, and he alludes to it here, that when you're not a Christian, you don't feel bad about it. Right? You might feel bad, and you might apologize like our cultural apologies happen. I mean, how do people, if you've done something, and with this whole thing going on right now, isn't it shocking that all of this sexual misconduct is coming out of Hollywood? Who would have thought it? Um, uh, that, that the capital of it all is manifesting itself in that way. Um, but do you hear the apologies? I'm sorry if I offended anybody. Meaning what? If I didn't offend anybody, I'm not that sorry. Uh, the, the, the sorry is only, I'm sorry I got caught. Which is really no apology uh, at all. And my brothers and I, when my mother would say, apologize to your brother, we'd always say, I'm really sorry that you don't have a sense of humor. Um, well, that's no apology at all. Uh, but what Paul is saying, I thought I was a pretty good guy until I became a Christian. And now that I'm a Christian, actually, I feel more guilty and worse than I did before I was a Christian. Isn't it supposed to be the other way around? Paul says it's like a war going on inside of me because now all of a sudden I'm aware of what it is I'm supposed to be doing and yet find it very difficult to do that thing. Uh, I think that the marriage service in our tradition captures this really well uh, because when I ask the husband and the wife, do you take this person to be your wife, this person to be your husband, uh, until death do you part, uh, what do we say? I, I will. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, because in Hollywood, what do they say in the movies? I do. Right? Now think about that for a minute. If I asked to, because look, you're never going to look better than you do on your wedding day. Right? Remember that? Like, I mean, even I was running, and I only run if somebody's chasing me. Right? I was doing everything uh, to get my wedding bod in order. And, uh, and at the you know, and isn't it funny when, I mean, because at the time I thought I've never, I've never looked better and, and then I would look at pictures of myself and being like, well, that doesn't look right. And then a couple years later, uh, I'd look at those pictures and I'd say, I'd kill to look like that again. You know, anyway. Um, but if I asked a, a couple, do you love one another right now? Do you promise one another to, do you promise to love one another in this moment? And she looks at him in his suit and, looking good, and he looks at her in this radiant dress? Yes, I do. It's real easy to say, I do. It's real hard to say, I will. Why? Because I will means 30 pounds later, losing a job. You know, good advice I got in, in marriage was, you know, and I do this with every premarital couple that I have, is I write down, I say, I want you to write down three things that you absolutely love about your future spouse. And then three things that if you could change about your future spouse, what would they be? And if a couple says, there's nothing I would change about them, I'm like, two extra sessions, right? (laughs) 
and one of them, and one of them is going to be involving a tandem kayak. If you, if you really want to pick a fight with your spouse, go in a tandem kayak. That'll do it every time. Um, and, um, and what I'll say about those three things before they're married, I said, look, one of three things could happen here. One, they could get better. Two, they could stay the same. Or three, they could get worse. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's the latter two. I do, right? Uh, but actually, it's, it's the I will. Uh, actually being willing to, to sacrifice yourself, as Paul talks about in Ephesians, for the sake of the other person. It doesn't mean that you look the other way. Uh, but actually, uh, being in the same boat uh, as St. Paul and as our spouse that ought to give us a better understanding of the nature of sin and ought to give us compassion for others who we're intimate with. Our loved ones, family, friends, wife, husband, children. Uh, because it, isn't it crazy that, you know, um, at the end of the day, uh, when, um, when we deserve God's wrath and damnation, which we are going to get to, what if we lowered the standard? Let's just say we lowered the standard for judgment. Like when we stand before the great throne of judgment, it's no longer God's standard, which is perfection, right? Absolute holiness in totality. Let's say we lessened to that. And instead, what we did is we all carried around, around our necks, recording devices. And every time we said, you ought to or you should, or you shouldn't, the tape recorder came on and taped it. And then at the judgment day, we were held account accountable for our own standards that we imposed on everybody else. We're still doomed, aren't we? Uh, because we think in our own flesh that we ought to get a break where other people shouldn't. Jesus talks about this quite a bit. Uh, in fact, uh, he talks about, remember the guy who uh, is, uh, owes a ton of money, and what does the rich man do? He forgives the debt in totality. And having this huge burden lifted from his shoulders, he's walking down, and he sees another guy who owes him a fraction of what he owed the other guy, and he snatches him up and throws him in jail and says, sorry about your wife and kids, but you're not going to be allowed to go out until you pay the debt. And many of us operate with grace in the same way. I want Jesus to have all kinds of grace toward me, but I have a really hard time showing grace to other people who actually are in the same boat as I am. I mean, how often do you in your own marriage, if you're married, think, you know, things would go really a whole lot better if you were just more like me. Right, wouldn't that be great? But instead, it doesn't work that way. In fact, because this not only manifests itself in our human relationships, it manifests itself supremely in our relationship with God. And that's why the Reformers were right to say it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. I was listening to something recently, uh, a Q&A at a conference, and the question was, uh, going back to Genesis in the fall, if God is so loving, 
why was he so harsh on Adam and Eve? And as a result, the rest of us. And I thought the person who answered the question did a very good job. He first corrected them. He said, it's not if God is so gracious and loving. It's since God is so gracious and loving, how could he be so wrathful and hard on Adam and Eve and us as a result? And I think that he was on to something because basically how he responded is, what a nonsense. We think that God is way too hard on us when we were told, and Eve echoes it, that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is going to happen? We will surely die. Do they die? They don't get blotted out. In fact, they're allowed to dwell in the Garden of Eden for at least one more day, aren't they? And then they affect, they, they take on the effects of the spiritual falling, where now all of a sudden they are subject to sin and death. But God actually allows them to dwell in the garden for one more day. And then he makes them clothes. And he offers them the promise of redemption. Of there would be one who would come from Adam and Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent while having his own heel bruised. God is more than merciful to us than we deserve. Absolutely. And that's so hard for us because in our own lives, I mean, I, I've been trying really hard uh, to keep track of all the things that I complain about in life. Like just the other, last week, there's a clergy group that gets together once a year to uh, talk about ministry and complain about parishioners. <laughs> and we try to go to a place that is going to be a little bit nicer than where we are. So this past week, we went to Hilton Head Island in South Carolina where there was three inches of snow and ice. Uh, and I got stuck in this hotel, and I blew a gasket because I'm paying $50 for really bad meals. And I was thinking, I'm going to go out, I'm going to get an alligator out of the pond who's already frozen, and I'm going to eat it. Uh, because this is not, this is not, and I just realized, is this how, is this bad? Is this as bad as it gets? Right, I'm sorry that you're stuck in a resort hotel with every, um, I was upset because the spa was closed early. I'm like, what kind of place is this? My day is ruined. I mean, it took me enough nerve just to say, I'm going to go to the spa. And then it came all crashing down. And think about the things that we complain about. <clears throat> and why? Because we all think that we deserve better. Right, complaining is thinking that we deserve better. Now, there are definitely things worth complaining about. Having to go to the courthouse to get your tags renewed. Complain. Absolutely. A sign that the judgment is upon us. But the things that we complain about day in, day out, we deserve much worse. Much, much worse. And we feel it, don't we? That's what Paul's talking about. We feel the condemnation in our own lives. How can I stop sinning? Well... The reformers go on to say that this infection of nature doth remain even in them that are regenerated. Right? Even in Christians, this remains. Christians are not sinless. We're not going to be sinless and have the ability to not sin until we behold Jesus face to face. 
And so here on this earth, but the difference is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass dimly. And what he's saying is that every once in a while, don't we, cl- we glimpse victory every once in a while. Uh, we, we glimpse uh, the redemption that is ours in Jesus on that day that we behold him face to face or when he comes again. But more than that, and the way Paul sums it up is when he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because this is misery. I'm stuck. I'm tired of saying, I don't know why I don't do this or why I do do this. But then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I find myself, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when the world turns on you, when you turn on yourself, and the world says, you're not good enough. You've failed. You've let me down. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Absolute freedom. Think about your human relationships that are marked by that. It happens every once in a while. I mean, you might have friends like me. I've basic, I told Lauren, I said, I'm switching to a flip phone. Like, I, I'm, I'm done with all this nonsense. And, uh, and then I realized, actually, what I want is an iPhone, but not the telephone part. I don't want to talk to anybody. That's what I've realized. So I want the iPhone without the, the ability uh, to talk to anybody. And... Uh, because I still have friends who I, you know, I thought, I haven't talked to this guy in a long time, and, and I'll call him up, and, and, uh, and he'll say, hey. And I'll say, well, hey, how are you? And he goes, who is this? Now, I don't recognize this voice. Are we still friends? You know what that does? That just makes me want to be his friend even more. Actually, no, it makes me think, I hope he gets hit by a train while he's talking on the phone in the car. Uh, you know, to be able... Uh, Define relationships that uh, have uh, a notion of grace, uh, even when judgment is deserved, are few uh, and far between to actually show people mercy. Uh, and I think the key to this, because that doesn't mean that there's not a place for the law. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for us feeling guilty, uh, because in fact, we probably need to feel more guilty about certain things uh, in our lives. Uh, But what it does mean is that being able to discern when we're dealing with someone who's crushed, who feels acutely what Paul was talking about in Romans 7, that we don't pour it on. But actually, they're probably at a place where what they need is a word of hope, a word of forgiveness. They don't need the friend saying, where are you? What they need is... I've missed your voice. I'm so glad that you called. You know, in our home, we try really hard to get rid of words like always and never, except as it pertains to God. Now, I grew up with brothers, and we'd punch each other in the face, and then 20 minutes later say, hey, you want to go ride bikes? Now I have girls, and it's like, you never. I'm like, what do you mean I never? Five months ago. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's ride bikes. Let's 
but men do it too. I mean, that's why St. Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs. Right? But using words like you always do this or you never, how do you respond to that? And in fact, the person who's on the receiving end of that already knows it. They already know it. But the key to change is love, supremely rooted in Jesus Christ. Because in any relationship, especially the marriage relationship, it's marked by sacrifice. I mean, people will, and they told me, and to some extent they're right, marriage is about compromise. It is if you're picking a restaurant. But really, marriage is about sacrifice that at any given moment, someone's actually willing to allow themselves to get steamrolled for the sake of the other person. That's, that's what relationships are about, that I'm actually willing to give way. So when Paul says to the husband in Ephesians, you ought to love your wife so much that you're willing to lay down your life for her, he's actually not talking about the physical life. He's talking about the entirety of a life. So I had a guy in premarital counseling once who isn't at this church, so I can talk about him all I want. Uh, but he said, I, I read, we read that bit of Ephesians, and he said, I'd totally take a bullet for her. <laughs> awesome. That's, that's great to know. And I said, but what? What if you passed up the job opportunity of your dreams so that she could pursue her ambitions by staying in the town you're in? What if you decided that you weren't going to go on the boys' trip every year that you normally go on in order to save up so that you can really decorate the nursery to the nines? What if you were willing to put your prerogatives, your preferences, your hopes, your dreams totally aside for your wife? And the look on his face said it all. That bullet sounds pretty good. But that's exactly what Jesus does for us because we are the selfish individual and there's nothing that we can do to thwart his love. Probably one of the hardest moments in parenting and I know that there are more to come and manifested in much harsher ways. But when Lily was about three years old, uh, she didn't want to get into the bathtub and she was just out of control that night. And there was actually somebody over at the house who was judging our parenting out loud um, and saying, you know, this is the parents' fault. I'm like, we're the parents, right, right here. And um, so I went upstairs to deal with it, and I put her in the bathtub, and she wouldn't sit down. And, I mean, she was shaking uh, with fury, and she was standing in the bathtub, and with fist clenched and teeth gritted, she looked up at me with deep intention and truth and looked at me and said, I don't love you. I was done. I mean, it I mean, it, it did more than took the wind out of my sails. It just completely and totally crushed me. And I picked her up and I held her. Because we're the kid in the bathtub who looks at God and says, I don't love you. And yet he picks us up and he holds us close. He knows our nature. He was tempted in every way as we are, but he did not sin. He sees us as we are in our selfishness and brokenness. 
and that there is no condemnation for those that believe. And so we are this mix, this concupiscence that the article talks about. And now we get to actually the more controversial section of Article 10. Because we talk about love changing us, but how is that love initiated? And this is what Article 10 says. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith in calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable with God, to God without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, that we may have a good will and working within us when we have that good will. Meaning that we actually cannot turn to God until He first intervenes in our lives. There's actually a difference, biblically speaking, between conversion and regeneration. We're actually regenerate before we convert. God actually intervenes in our lives and opens up our eyes to the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that and that alone is only that which allows us to turn and follow after Him. That's our conversion. But He first intervenes in our life. And in the same way, with fists clenched, like Lily didn't issue an invitation and say, please pick me up and love me. In fact, I want you to get as far away from me as possible. I don't love you. I don't want to be near you. And people will say wrongly, unbiblically, that God is too much of a gentleman to force himself upon you in your life. Praise God that that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Because if that's the case, we're all doomed. And looking at Romans 7, I say, intervene away. Violate my will. Do as you see fit, God. When I was at Oxford, some of y'all have heard this story a hundred times, but I'm going to tell it again. Keeble College has Holman Hunt's The Light of Christ painting, the original there, in a side chapel where it belongs. And it's very famous. I'm, th I'm sure we've got postcards of it in the bookstore. It's the one where Jesus is standing outside the door with a lantern, and he's got his arm raised where he's about to knock. And if you look at the door, there are weeds all around the front, and there's no doorknob on uh, the outside of the door. Uh, so, uh, Revelation, uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Uh, so the understanding is that, that if we're on the inside, we pull the door open when God knocks. And that always bothered me. And I didn't really, it didn't come home to me until I uh, all of a sudden recalled a story, uh, something that I saw when I was an undergraduate in Charlottesville. I used to stay in Charlottesville during the summer because... I wanted to do whatever I wanted uh, and, and not go home and be under those rules. So I remember I was going to the grocery store. It was called Farmer Jack's. And, uh, and when I got out the car, it was July. It's hot in Charlottesville. There was a commotion going around this 19, late 1970s Oldsmobile sedan. And, um, and in it was a little girl who was about two years old who was locked in the car with the windows up. The mother had accidentally locked, thought the child was already out of the door and shut the door with the door locked, and the little girl was stuck. And it looked like she'd already been in there for a little bit because she was just perspiration pouring down. Her face was red. She had blotchy skin. Her eyes were uh, swollen, from, and she was screaming, crying. And everybody was yelling at this girl, just pull up on the lock. Just pull up on the lock. That's all you have to do. Pull up on the lock. And she just couldn't do it. 
And then there was this big burly guy there. And he went to his truck, which was loaded down with all kinds of stuff, and he took a crowbar and he told the little girl to get down in the back seat and he busted in a window. And he reached in and he pulled the girl out. Holman Hunt should have painted that painting having Jesus holding a battering ram. Because we're inside, bound and unable to answer the door. And the biblical testimony is Jesus is in the business of busting down windows and knocking down doors to get to you. Even if you're not crying out for help. He's mighty to save. I mean, doesn't all of this, the nature of our sin and the nature of our bound will, as hard as it is for us as Americans to grapple with, it makes the gospel all the more glorious. It makes grace astounding. And that's the point. And that is the point that the reformers want to drive home and that the Bible wants to drive home of just how glorious uh, a Savior Jesus is and the great lengths that he has gone to and will go to to get to his children. Questions, comments, concerns? Was, sin, was Eve not already inclined to sin before she actually ate the apple? Well, what I will say about Adam and Eve, and Augustine talks about this, is that Eve and Adam, although could be tempted to sin, in the same way that Jesus was. Remember, Jesus was tempted to sin. He knows the feeling of temptation, but he never succumbed to it. That Adam and Eve could be tempted to sin, but they were the only human beings that had the ability to say no. They actually had a free will, and yet were incapable of exercising it at that point. I think the scariest thing about that scene is that there is a moment in time where Eve has fallen and Adam has not. And Adam decides to throw his lot in with his wife rather than, than God. Um, so... She had the ability not to do it, but, you know, what's the old, uh, the old joke, I had the right to remain silent, but I did not exercise it? Kind of one of those things. Carol. Andrew, um, earlier this week in the Wall Street Journal, uh, there was a review of a book, and it took up a whole page column. It was really long, and the premise of the book, apparently, according to this review, was trying to figure out if, if, if human beings were really inclined toward good but then did evil right. or inclined toward evil but then did good the thing was very very long and at the end of it i realized uh thank you oh, please do yeah it's i mean now we use the word mistakes we we make mistakes or we make bad choices uh when in fact um i, I that's not to say that human beings don't do good things we do good things uh, all the time uh, for ourselves and for one another. Um, th that's that's not the issue. But when it comes, when it, especially when it comes to to God and relationships, uh, we're going to pick ourselves. Uh, and unless there's some sort of intervention, uh, that's not, and that's that's still a continual struggle, isn't? I mean, the one that would say, "I really love this this person who I'm in a relationship with," it's still continually having to remind yourself that wait a minute. I need to think of them before I think uh, of myself. 
Choosing and will. Choosing and will? What do you mean? We can obviously make choices wear black or brown socks, but right. we can't yeah. we can't will ourselves into heaven. Yeah, you can't will yourselves into heaven. I mean, here's the thing. If you're a big free will person, life must really stink for you uh, because you think that people actually have the ability to make all the right decisions all the time. And if you can just sit down and explain to someone rationally what the right way forward is, they ought to be able to follow it. Has that ever worked? Uh, in your life? I've never, and, and that's just with convincing someone to, to pick up their shoes or to take out the garbage or whatever it is. Uh, but when it comes to God, I've never been able to argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. It just, it really is, I mean, that doesn't mean that I don't put forward a reason for the hope that I have within me, but I need to understand that I pour out the gospel like water and pray that the Holy Spirit turns it into wine. Uh, hey, uh, isn't everything we do or don't do necessarily sinful in some way because we're never perfect? Yeah, I think that that's, I think that everything is tainted by sin. I mean, that, I know that that's a hard statement, but um, Harvard did a survey, or actually it was not a survey, it was a, an experiment where they gave 100 people a hundred, $100 bill each. And to half of them, they said, I want you to go out and give it away or use it on somebody else. And on the other 50, spend it on yourself. And then when they came back, uh, what they found was the people uh, who gave it away or spent it on someone else actually felt better. And they thought initially, well, see, that, that's the altruistic nature of human beings. It is better to give uh, than to receive. But then they started to dig deeper and they had neuroscientists involved, and they said, no, 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 no. There, it is better to give to receive because of a chemical that's released in your own body when you do a good deed, which actually reinforces, like, this is something I ought to do, but actually the real beneficiary in the giving of the $100 was who? The giver. And have you ever taken your kids to Disney World? Worth the price, well, that's another story, but worth the price of the ticket just to see their faces when they see the castle. Right? Because that, but if your kids went like, thought it would be bigger, you'd be crushed, wouldn't you? So it turns out it's not about the kids, it's about you. Andrew. Yes. Would you return to your statement on Jesus knocks at the door or he crashes in the door? Um, I guess I always get confused at what point, and I don't know that there's an answer for this, does God harden a heart? Yes. Um, when it comes to in-laws, uh, uh, well, I would say what the Bible says about it, we, would be, we should be very careful about treading there. Uh, because the moment we begin to see, we'll see God has hardened their heart. Uh, we, we've almost set ourselves up as, as, as God's interpreter when God is his own interpreter. I think that the thing, what the Bible calls us to do is to be faithful in our witness and to let God sort out the heart. So you've got the parable of the sower where the sower is just sowing indiscriminately and it's falling on all kinds of different soil and, and it really is God who determines whether he's going to plow up uh, hard hearts uh, or not. Uh, 
so I think that the key is to be faithful and to put it out there so that in our witness, it may be that God is using us as the battering ram, that we're the means by which somebody's eyes are open to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And so the Bible nowhere says that you can just sit back and God will take care of it all. Uh, nowhere does it say that. Uh, God will go to some extraordinary means. Uh, but when it comes, I, I would imagine that the, the default position of the human heart is hardened. And so it's a real miracle, uh, the greatest miracle of all in the Bible, that, that God would save anybody. And God, in his foreknowledge and wisdom, does things the way that he does them. But what I can promise you is that when we get up to heaven, nobody is going to say, that's not fair. It's going to make total sense. And we'll be like, praise God. But I would be very careful about treading. We're actually going to get to that with the doctrine of election down the road. Then you'll all love me. (laughs) Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.